It is good to be back together here this morning. Um, Give praise to God that this weather this Sunday was not last Sunday, right? For um, we were out of town, but I heard it was beautiful, beautiful weather for the uh, community service out at the out at the lake. So I'm glad it worked out that way. Uh, well, we are, we are now in the uh, fifth week of our current uh, sermon series, and so we've been studying, uh, studying themes and topics which first make their appearance in Genesis 1 through 3, and then we trace those themes uh, out through the rest of the Bible. And because this is the, uh, the fifth week um, uh, in the first few chapters of Genesis, Perhaps this question is a bit overdue, but have you ever wondered what it would have been like to live in the Garden of Eden? I mean, I mean to think about what would that, that reality, that existence have been like? Uh, it's prob- there's probably an obvious answer to that question. I, I imagine most of us have thought about that at least once, at least for a little bit. Man, what would that have been like? To have lived in the Garden of Eden. I mean, after all, it's 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 uh, it's difficult to read those first two chapters and see all the descriptions about things being good, and not wonder what that would have been like. Uh, sin had yet to enter the picture, and so it's natural to ponder how things would have been different in that kind of a reality. I think about a reality where there's no crime. That would have been that reality there. Uh, a reality where there's no shame. A reality where work is not a burden, but it's a delight. Um, a reality where God himself walked in the garden in the cool of the day. How cool would that have been? Um, a reality where there would be nothing hindering my relationship with God. I mean, it would have been such an incredible existence. Such an incredible reality to experience. In, in our longing for that type of an existence, I think then our thoughts naturally shift from the perfection of Eden to the actions of Adam and Eve, don't they? <laughs> Specifically, their decision to eat from the one lone tree in the garden that God told them not to. And, and just thinking about it can cause my body to tense up just a little bit. And I feel some anger and feel some resentment toward Adam and Eve. I, I mean, they had one job to do, right? One job. How hard was it to simply stay away from that tree? I feel like I've had that conversation as a parent multiple times. Like, how hard was it to just not do that, right? I mean, go anywhere else in the garden. Eat from any other tree that you want. Just don't eat from that one. And the bad news, we already know, they didn't stay away from that tree, and and they did eat of its fruit. The good news is that what was lost in that moment, what was broken as a result, will be made right, and is being made right once again. So I'm a little upset with Adam and Eve, I'll be honest but it is being made right once again. And, and throughout the pages of Scripture, we see our loving God 
showing his love to us by restoring what was broken. And, and one of the main ways that we see that, one of the main ways we see this work of God is through the theme of sanctuary. And, and that's maybe not quite what you thought I would say right there, the theme of sanctuary, but my hope is that by the end of this morning, we'll not only clearly see that theme being played out in the Bible, but, but we'll, we'll have a, a firm grasp of our role in that theme today. So the first thing I want to do this morning is, is make a case that the very first sanctuary that we see in the Bible was not the temple in Jerusalem, nor was it the tabernacle that came before the, temp, the temple, but was actually the garden in Eden, that that is the first sanctuary that is shown to us. So well, let's read about it in Genesis chapter 2, and then I'll explain why I think that we ought to view the garden in that way, as a sanctuary. So if you want to turn with me, Genesis chapter 2, and this will be starting in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you remember uh, back two weeks ago, we talked about the theme of Sabbath. And, and one of the things we talked about was, was how God's instituting the Sabbath on the seventh day w was his separating it from the other six days. It was a holy day. It was, it was separate from the other six. We ought to think about the garden in Genesis chapter 2 in the same kind of way. It is something that is holy. It is something that is set apart from the rest of creation. In fact, while we refer to it as the Garden of Eden, a close reading of the text reveals that it is really the Garden in Eden. Eden is the name of the general location in which the Garden was planted. So you can call it the Garden of Eden, that, that, that's fine, but, but it's presented to us as a garden that is separated from the rest of Eden. And you could say the rest of creation at this point. And it's interesting that all of creation is good. All of creation is sinless at this point. Genesis 3 has not happened yet. And so at first glance, it might not seem necessary. Why, God, why, why separate a garden from the rest of creation? But that's what he did. He himself created this set-apart place, and he put Adam there. He created 
really a special place to meet with Adam. And so what I want to do is look at some of the details of the garden that, that were given in Genesis chapter 2 and compare them to the details given to us um, about the other sanctuaries in the Bible, the, the tabernacle and the temple specifically. Um, and, and a fair warning, I'm going to go pretty quickly through these and throw a lot of Bible references at you. Um, I encourage you to hang in there because the payoff's going to be at the end. I just want to make the case that I think we're supposed to think about this as a sanctuary. So, so the first thing that we can note is that, that the sanctuaries in the Bible mark the location where God personally meets with his people. In Genesis 3, 8, uh, we see that God walked in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. That's where he met with them. If you continue through scripture, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God told the people to make a tabernacle so that he might dwell in their midst, so that he might meet with them. Uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, God chose the temple as the place where people would come to meet with him. So, so just like God met with his people in the tabernacle and in the temple, same thing with the garden in Eden. Next, the, the entrances to the sanctuaries always faced to the east. And, and I'm not pointing to a significance to east compared to other directions right now. I'm just pointing out that they all faced east. They all have that in common. So in, in Genesis 3.24, once Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, we see that cherubim guarded the garden on the east side. And the logical assumption is that's because that's where the entrance to the garden was. You wouldn't guard somewhere where there's not an entrance. So they're guarding the east. That's where the entrance is. In Exodus chapter 27, if you're reading that uh, description of the tabernacle walls and gates, you know, the, let's be honest, the, the things that we kind of skim as we're reading through parts of the Old Testament, if, if you were to really sit down and kind of map out and look at the details, it shows that the tabernacle faced to the east. Uh, we know that both Solomon's temple in the Old Testament and Herod's temple uh, during the time of Jesus faced to the east. Uh, even in Ezekiel 47, when Ezekiel has his vision of the future, the temple in that vision faces east. So again, all of these sanctuaries have that in common. Uh, next, the, there's cherubim guarding the sanctuaries. Uh, we just talked about Genesis 3, cherubim and, and a flaming sword guarded the entrance to the, to the garden. In Exodus 25, we see that in the most holy place above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, there's cherubim with their, with their wings overshadowing the mercy seat. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel has this vision where, where the glory of the Lord is departing from the temple, and that vision includes cherubim in with it. So, so cherubim are connected to sanctuaries. Uh, next, there's garden imagery within God's sanctuaries. Now, it's kind of obvious within the Garden of Eden, it is a literal garden. So there's garden imagery there. But even within the tabernacle and within the temple, there, there were lampstands which portrayed things found in a garden when you read the descriptions. So Exodus chapter 25 speaks of, a lamp, of the lampstands having branches that come out like a tree. It was meant to be kind of a picture of a tree in the sanctuary. And then there were almond blossoms and flowers on those lampstands as well. 
Again, it was meant to paint this picture of a garden. So we see that connection. And then finally, and and we'll land on this one a, a little bit more shortly, someone from mankind is given a role as priest in God's sanctuary. There's always that connection. Where there's a sanctuary, there is someone from, the, from mankind serving as priest. So in Genesis 2.15, we see Adam given the command to work and keep the garden, or the sanctuary, as we're looking at it this morning. If you were to look at Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, we see that the exact same two Hebrew commands are given to the Levites as they are installed in their priestly roles regarding the tabernacle, to work it and to keep it. I don't think that's coincidence there. The role of priests in the tabernacle and and the temple, and, and I would say even with Adam in the garden, was to focus upon and facilitate the worship of God. That, that's essentially the role of a priest. Focus upon God, facilitate the worship of him. So all that to say, I told you we were going to go through that quick and lots of references. All that to say, it seems clear that when we read about the garden in Genesis chapter 2, we're meant to make this connection to the tabernacle and, and later to the permanent temple in Jerusalem. Just as the tabernacle and the temple were constructed uh, and utilized as the place where God would meet with his people and be worshipped by his people, the Garden of Eden functioned in that way as well. It was a set-apart place in Eden, in all of creation, where God would be worshipped. It was a holy place where God would be worshipped. But what we see as we read through scripture and look at these sanctuaries is there was a problem that kept coming up in connection to each of these sanctuaries. And the problem was with the priests. Every time, the problem is with the priests. Adam failed in his role as priest. He ate from the tree he was commanded not to. Rather than focus upon God and the worship of God, he focused on his own desires and took the fruit he was not supposed to and ate it. Um, The priests who later served in the temple in Jerusalem failed as well. Uh, In Malachi, among other places all over the New Testament, God spoke against the priests who who profaned his name and and really failed to carry out their God-given role. The problem with the sanctuary was always the priests. In the garden and in the tabernacle and in the temple, we, we see it again and again and again. Mankind failed to carry out that priestly calling to worship God and to serve him. Didn't matter whether the priest was Adam or Aaron or Aaron's sons, they failed. And, and there were consequences for it. Uh, with Adam, it led to <clears throat> mankind being evicted from the first sanctuary. They were evicted from that garden. With uh, the temple, it led to God vacating that sanctuary. The vision where God's presence rises up from the most holy place and it makes its way out of the tabernacle and out of the city and across the valley and away it goes. The Old Testament shows that a sanctuary on earth that is dependent upon humanity to serve as uh, priests is destined to fail. You see it over and over again. 
So we might say, well, better just go back to the drawing board. Obviously, that system doesn't work. Obviously, mankind cannot be counted upon to carry out its role in these sanctuaries. But none of it was a surprise to God. None of that was a surprise. And he was going to provide a new holy location for himself to meet with mankind, to relate with mankind. And he was going to provide a human priest who actually could carry out the role, fulfill the requirements of that role. And so, of course, enter Jesus, right? And Jesus, what we see in Jesus was God doing both of those things. God returning to dwell with mankind once again, and also this perfect priest who's able to carry out that role, to, to focus upon God, facilitate the worship of God. So let's start with the presence, presence of God among mankind once again. That presence was present in the garden, but it was lost. It was present in the temple, but it was lost. Listen to what John writes in the first chapter of his gospel. This is that famous verse, John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And a, I think I've said this before, a more literal translation of that phrase would be the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That would be the most literal way to translate that, that phrase there. Tabernacled among us. The, the first sanctuary where God dwelled was a garden. The next one was a tabernacle. The next one was a temple. Here, another sanctuary was given where God would dwell with man. And here, it's Jesus. Jesus is that sanctuary, that tabernacle, that temple. You know, when, when, uh, when Jesus states that he is holy, he's not just referring to his, his conduct, or his sinlessness. That is true, don't get me wrong, but his holiness can also refer to the, to the fact that he is the set-apart place where God chose to interact with and relate with mankind. I mean, he's holy in that set-apart sense. He's the holy place where you and I go to meet with God. That's Jesus. So when, when Jesus states that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him, he's not speaking figuratively. It's not a figure of speech in, in, in any way. He is literally the holy place where the Father meets with mankind. God himself comes and dwells with mankind. He is the sanctuary. The, the, the uniting of divinity with humanity in the person of Jesus is not just a miracle. It is a miracle, but it is also the restoration of all those failed sanctuaries that came previously. Jesus is that new sanctuary. 
So, so he's the presence of God with mankind, but he's not just the sanctuary, he's also the priest that serves in that sanctuary. I said earlier that, that uh, mankind failed time and time again when it came to carrying out the priestly role given to it by God. Jesus, however, succeeded fully. He did not fail in that role. And, and the book of Hebrews speaks about this in a couple of different places. And we'll just look at a couple of them. Uh, you can turn with me if you want to Hebrews chapter 4. This is what it says in Hebrews 4, uh, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus is that great high priest who administers and, and facilitates mankind's worship of God. Um, and, and something jumped out at me reading this passage that, that I hadn't really noticed before. Um, I had noticed in verse 15, where, where it speaks of Jesus being tempted just as we are, yet without sin. We often, you know, we rightly talk about the sinlessness of Jesus um, coming from that verse. Uh, but I never made the connection between Jesus, the great high priest, and Adam, the first priest. I mean, Adam was tempted in his role as priest, was he not? The temptation was to, to go and to sin by eating from the tree that he was commanded not to. And there's no question that he succumbed to that temptation and became sinful and failed to carry out his priestly role. And every priest, uh, not just Adam, but every priest that came after Adam, same thing, failed, gave in to temptation, couldn't carry out their role. Jesus, however, faced temptation and remained sinless. Not just as a human, I mean, he was a sinless human, but he was also a sinless priest. We hadn't seen a sinless priest up to this point, but Jesus was the one. He was able to carry out that role perfectly where, where all who came before him had failed. So, so we see Hebrews making that connection for us. And then also, if you look at uh, chapter eight in Hebrews, uh, there's another thing here that we can look at. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So again, the, the role of priests was to facilitate the worship of God. And, and when you think about the tabernacle and the temple, that was done through the animal and the grain offerings that were brought in by the people. That, that was their form, their mode of worship in the temple. The priests would facilitate those offerings being given. And I would say, you might even argue that Adam was supposed to play that kind of role as well. So, so in Genesis 
chapter 4. Right? Genesis chapter 3 is where Adam and Eve sinned. The chapter ends with them being um, evicted from the garden, evicted from the sanctuary. And then we get to Genesis chapter 4. And, in, and immediately in the text, after Adam is evicted, two offerings are brought to God. The offerings of Cain and Abel, right? And you might argue that because the priest was not able to help facilitate that worship of God within the garden sanctuary, things went horribly wrong, and the first murder took place. Uh, and that's not, not to excuse Cain's actions in any way and say, well, it was his dad's fault that his dad wasn't carrying out his role. But I think it's possible that we are meant to see from the very beginning that a priest is needed to aid mankind in their worship of God. I, I think we are led to see that in Genesis 2 and 3 and 4. And so Jesus, our great high priest, is the one that facilitates that worship of God through the sacrifice of himself. Uh, Hebrews goes on to call Jesus' death on the cross a better sacrifice than all those animals. And, and rightly so. It, of course, is the better, perfect sacrifice. So because we have a sinless high priest who has given a perfect sacrifice, we're able to confidently approach God, as, as Hebrews chapter 4 talks about. Um, the eviction from God's presence that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 has been overturned. I mean, what a, what a blessing that that is. All the places that mankind kept failing when it came to, to these sanctuaries where God would meet with his people and be worshipped. Jesus came and he fulfilled it. Fulfilled it perfectly. The question then is what does this all mean for you and me, right? Well, that's a fine history lesson. Maybe there were some connections we hadn't made there before. But what does it mean for my day-to-day -day life? What's the practical implications of all of this? I would say the first thing it means is that there is access to God for you and me. There is access. Even though we are sinners and even though we have no business being in the presence of God, he has come to us and he has provided the way for us to enter into his presence. Uh, and of course, that's through his sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself upon the cross. Our sins are forgiven. We are restored to a right relationship with God. We can now enter his presence once again. And in addition to that, in a, really in light of Jesus' ascension, right, because Jesus came he did all of that, and then he ascended back into heaven. In light of that, he has commissioned his people. He's commissioned us to function as both the sanctuary and the priest. New Testament goes on to talk about this. Jesus ascended, and now we carry out those roles. So sanctuary, as God's people, we ourselves are the sanctuary in which God dwells. We are the sanctuary in which God dwells. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says this. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And, and in this section, the you is plural, right? It's the plural you, not just, you know, Paul's not writing to one person. He's writing to the church. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We, as the body of Christ, are the place God has chosen to dwell and relate with us. We are the sanctuary. Now, now I know that this room is called the sanctuary, but, but in essence, this room is not the sanctuary of God. We are the sanctuary. It is us gathered in this room who are the sanctuary. Uh, you know, I'm here at the church often when this room is dark and empty. And I was debating the other day, should I even call this the sanctuary when nobody's in here? Uh, you know, I'm not gonna, not gonna, you know, call you out or you, please don't call me out when I do that in the future. But, but really, when nobody is in here, this is not the sanctuary of God. It's an empty room. We, God's people, are that sanctuary. God has chosen to make his dwelling place among his people. And in Ephesians chapter 2 goes on and it expands on this picture. It talks about Jesus being the cornerstone and, and then we are built up together on that foundation to be the holy temple of the Lord. It's a cool picture that, that's painted there by Paul. So, you know, the practical implications of this First, th this gathering this morning is a holy gathering where God himself is present. And I know we would, know, I mean, we would nod our heads to that, right? But, but really let that sink in. This is a holy gathering where God himself is present. And, and I'm not saying that to put pressure on us like, oh man. <laughs> but I think there ought to be a bit of awe and wonder along with that, shouldn't there be? I mean, imagine the wonder that you and I would have if, if we could visit the Garden of Eden, or if we could go into the most holy place in the temple, or, or if we could walk with Jesus when he was on earth. I mean, imagine the wonder that we would have in that type of setting. Well, God's presence is no less present here today than any of those other settings. The garden, the temple, Jesus himself walking on earth. His presence is here just as much. I, man, I, I know that as a pastor, I can get caught up in the coordination of the worship service and, you know, the effectiveness of what we're doing and how, and perhaps there's things that for you on Sunday morning that can steal your focus away, but, but we all ought to remember that this gathering at its essence is a meeting between God and his people. That, that, that's what we are doing when we gather together. We're the sanctuary. How privileged we are to get to be a part of that. God comes here and meets with us, not because of the room or the address or anything else, but because it's his people gathered together. And, and you know, I, I think flowing out of that then, second, the re, the, that, that reality is at the heart of why it's so important that we do meet together as a church. Because this, this is where God has chosen to meet with his people. And you know, I, I know we're coming out of a pandemic season. There was a lot of uncertainty about churches gathering and should and shouldn't, and how do we, how do we uh, move forward there? I never imagined I'd be thinking so much about the theology of online church and whether or not 
when Jesus references two or three gathered together, if that includes a Zoom chat or not. And, you know, it's like I never thought I'd be so in-depth on that. And to be honest, while it seems like some churches wanted to meet together simply to just send a message to the government or stick it to the government, there really was something deeper to be considered there. You know, we have to take seriously the call to gather together, understanding that it's in such a gathering that God has chosen to meet with us. Um, And I'm not saying that God isn't present with us when we are by ourselves. I'm not saying that at all. But I do want to place a great emphasis on the gathering of the local church because the Bible leads us to place an emphasis on the gathering of the local church. And so we always have to remember that we're not just getting together out of habit or tradition or for something to do on Sunday morning. This is where God has chosen to meet with us. So sanctuary, right? We are the sanctuary. That we are as the gathered body where God has chosen to meet with his people. We're also tasked with being the priests. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, we really see this explained, if you'd like to turn there. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And you can almost say, well, there's more sanctuary talk right there. But then he goes on, built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And if you skip down to verse 9, we see it again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as people who've been saved by the blood of Jesus, we are now priests tasked with focusing on the worship of God. Um, as, as priests, we ourselves ought to be worshiping God. And I think verses four and five hit on that. Uh, verse five says we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. It, it takes me to Romans chapter 12, where it talks about offering your, your bodies as living sacrifices to God. And, and really that means offering the physical to God, not just the spiritual. So worshiping God through our working, our eating, our sleeping, our, our recreating, our parenting, I mean, anything, everything that we do, that as priests we are to worship God through that rather than uh, focusing on our own selfish desires like Adam did or, or the other Old Testament priests did. We ought to focus upon worshiping God through sacrifice like our great high priest did. There was two very distinct pictures painted there. All the other priests were focused on selfishness. Jesus was focused on sacrifice. That was his worship. So as priests, we ourselves ought to be worshiping God, but we ought to be leading others into worship of God as well. First um, Peter 2, 9 talks about that, proclaiming the excellencies 
of God. I think inherent in that statement is making God known to others so that they might worship him for who he is, proclaiming his excellencies. A a priest was to serve as a mediator who would lead the people into worship of God. So we can ask ourselves, is my life leading others into a worship of God? Am I functioning as a priest in that way? And if not, then, then if my life is not leading others into worship of God, then I'm not carrying out that part of the priestly role that I've been given. I think it's pretty incredible. One, it's incredible that Jesus came to be the sanctuary where God met with his people and to be the priest, the perfect priest, who facilitated that worship of God. And I'm so glad that he did because the Old Testament is filled with failures, right? From Adam all the way on down through Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. But then the second thing is, you know, God fixed what was broken all the way back in the garden. He fixed what was broken, but then, I mean, we praise him that he didn't just fix it, he brings us into the picture, Once he has ascended, now we continue to carry out that role, the sanctuary role and the priestly role as well. What a a high calling that is. I mean, I, I, I think rightly understood, we cannot depart from here this morning just saying, ah, that's kinda cool. I think that ought to give us a reverence, it ought to give us a humility, It ought to give us direction in our life. It it is a high calling to be the place where God meets with his people and to be the priests that help facilitate the worship of God. It's a high calling for sure, but it's a blessed calling as well. I would say we are privileged as God's people to have that kind of a calling on our lives. Would you stand with me? Let's... Let's give God praise for who he is and what he's done. God, I think we have to start out this morning and and thank you that you even want to meet with us. Uh, It's truly incredible that from the very beginning in creation, you, you made a place where we could have a relationship with you, this special place where we would relate together. You didn't have to do that, but you did. And, and your love for us is just so evident because of that. And, and so we give you praise. We give you praise that, that you are not a distant God. You are not a God that we have to coerce into having a relationship with us. That you are a God who paved the way for us to have a relationship with you. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you that even though we, as mankind, failed again and again, that you came and you fixed it. Thank you that you came and dwelt among us. We thank you that you came and were that priest that that we were unable to be. And so, God, as we think about the implications of that, as we reflect on our calling in that, we pray for wisdom. We pray for guidance. We pray for, for uh, the amount of awe and wonder that that should elicit in us. 
God, help us to see these gatherings as the place where you meet with us. Help us not to forget that. Small details are important and, and, and we give consideration to those things, but, uh, but help us to keep that big picture in mind that we are gathered here with you this morning and empower us to carry out our role as your priests. God, I thank you that, uh, that you desire us to do that, that you empower us to do it, that you give us the wisdom to do it. God, we want to be people who are focused upon the worship of you in our own lives and spreading out towards others as well. God, we give you praise. It's why we, it's why we sing. It's why we, uh, it's why we worship you in, in so many other ways in our words and actions and thoughts as well. We want you to be honored. We want you to be glorified in our midst this morning. Help us to do that. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.